This is an ABC podcast. There's potentially immense value in understanding oneself. Don't think I will ever go back to being quite as extroverted as I used to be. Personality traits are associated with all sorts of real-world phenomena, how well you perform at work, even how long you live. I meet people who say, look, I know I'm an extrovert, but as I've gone through life, I've actually started to feel more comfortable behaving in an introverted way. They've just seen the value and the benefit of learning and using that opposite approach more. Would you call yourself an introvert or an extrovert? Or maybe you're a bit of both. And I say that because when it comes to personality traits and states, it's not black and white, it's a spectrum. But sometimes we still desire a label or a name for what we are. Have you ever done a personality test to find out where you sit compared to others? Maybe you've done a psychometric or personality test when applying for a job. Here in Australia, around 40% of recruiters and employers ask candidates or employees to do one of these tests. But how helpful are they, really, when it comes to our work? Hello, I'm Lisa Leong, and on this episode of This Working Life, we're getting our paper and pencils ready to find out who we are according to these personality tests and learn how they help us and our teams work better. Well, I've been studying personality for about 20 years, and somewhere along the line, I guess you get curious as to where you fall on these various dimensions that you're studying. That's Luke Smiley. I'm an associate professor in psychology at the University of Melbourne. And are you more introverted or extroverted, Luke? I'm somewhere in the middle, very (laughs) slightly on the introverted side. And you point out on your research page that our personalities shape our lives in profound ways. But how do personalities shape our work lives, Luke? Personalities influence how we perceive situations. They influence the kinds of choices we might make. They influence how we respond to both good and bad things, stresses, incentives, and so forth. And all of those things are present to some degree in work life, starting from when you're making choices about the kinds of subjects you might want to study, such as when you're responding to stresses in the workplace, such as when there are opportunities that you can pursue in a work environment, such as maybe a leadership opportunity or a change in career or a change in job. All of those things are influenced by your personality traits. Well, if I tie two of those things together, so how we perceive situations and then how we respond to them, one personality trait, for example, is called agreeableness. It describes how compassionate and polite and trusting we tend to be. Agreeable people tend to perceive situations as having more opportunities for cooperation and harmonious social relationships. And so they're more likely to perceive less friction in a interaction with a colleague and more opportunities for some kind of uh, mutually valued outcome. Conversely, somebody who's very low on agreeableness might perceive that same interaction as a bit more of a winner-takes-all situation, a bit more competitive, a bit more zero-sum that might lead them to pursue an outcome that is less harmonious, less cooperative. How many personality traits have you found in your research in terms of the main categories? There are countless ways in which we can describe people, but a lot of research points to there being about somewhere between three and seven 
clusters of personality dimensions. And the one people have probably heard about is the big five. So the big five consists of extroversion, which describes the degree to which you're outgoing and energetic and talkative and sociable and um, particularly sociable in the sense of attracting a lot of social attention and being the life of the party and, and being quite socially kind of dominant, I suppose. Then you have agreeableness, the tendency to be cooperative and trusting and compassionate and polite and respectful and generally to pursue um, harmonious social relationships. Then you have conscientiousness, which is the tendency to be very organized and orderly and industrious and hardworking and, and very um, goal-oriented, I suppose. Then you have openness to experience, which is the tendency to be very curious and imaginative, absorbed by aesthetic stimuli like art, uh, drawn to semantic and intellectual stimuli like ideas and literature and uh, philosophy and so forth. And then finally you have uh, neuroticism, which uh, is the name with the most baggage. Um, it's sometimes <laughs> referred to as emotional instability. And that describes the tendency to be, on average, not all the time, but a bit more towards the experiences of anxiety and negative emotions, irritability, worry, stress. And it's, it is a risk factor for many clinical versions of those experiences, such as depression, for example. So exactly how accurate are personality tests in the first place? Well, according to Nick Haslam, Professor of Psychology at the University of Melbourne, it's quite hard to determine because there's no gold standard to measure it against. So you, don't ha you can't actually see what someone's real personality is to evaluate whether a particular test is accurate or not. I think a better uh, thing to think about is how good it is at predicting things in the real world. So can how you respond on a test predict... Uh, how you perform in real life. And on that sense of accuracy, personality tests are actually quite good. Personality traits are associated with all sorts of real-world phenomena, how well you perform at work, even how long you live, uh, your likelihood of having some sort of relationship breakdown, uh, a wide range of things. So personality tests are accurate in the sense that they can predict things that we care about, uh, including work performance. So, Nick, Personality tests can be a good tool to determine whether someone is a good fit for a job? Personality tests can be quite useful when it comes to predicting how well you perform in a particular uh, workplace. So there's a great deal of research evidence, for instance, that the personality trait of conscientiousness can predict how well you tend to perform at work uh, across a wide range of uh, work types. The research evidence is extremely strong and these things are well measured. So people who are more conscientious are going to be less likely to be uh, absent, less likely to steal the stationery, more likely to have a strong motivation to get time tasks completed on time and be punctual, things like that. So that's just one trait. Leadership tends to be uh, easier and more successful among people who are high in extroversion. So to the extent that you're measuring these traits, you are predicting human behavior in the workplace. Now, that's not to say it's the only factor that matters. Of course, other things matter, your skills, your knowledge, your past experience. No one's claiming that personality is the only thing that matters, but it does actually add uh, reliable prediction to how well you'll do in work workplaces on average. And I think you also, when you assess that question, have to say, compared to what? Uh, what are the alternatives? Interviews, which a lot of people have a great deal of faith in when it comes to evaluating uh, you for a job, are very often close to worthless in terms of how well they do predict how well you'll do in that job. 
Hmm, that's interesting. So Nick is saying that interviews are far less reliable and less accurate on average than personality tests are. People don't usually like doing psychometric tests. There's a lot of scepticism about them on the part of people who are applying for jobs. But actually, in many respects, they're fairer than some of the alternatives. They are going to ask you exactly the same questions uh, as other people. Uh, They're not going to ask you specific questions that other candidates don't get. They're uh, very uh, impersonality. Their very mechanical nature in some way is fairer. They won't be judging you by what you wear. They won't be judging you by what school you went to, uh, in some respects, not only are they accurate, but they're also less biased than some of the other kinds of information that can be used to select people. And of course, the tests can help you understand your own personality and realise the differences between yourself and others. So I'm a pretty extroverted person, but I definitely need introverted alone time to recharge. And over the years, I have noticed a shift. So I was a lawyer in the 90s and I did a personality test then to determine what my traits were. The test helped me understand myself and others and how that informed my work. My results in the 90s showed that indeed I was an extrovert and I learned that when people were silent in meetings, it didn't actually mean that they had nothing to say. If I gave them space, then they would have the time to think about things and they would come up with something brilliant. Nick says that this subconscious judgment of people at work, whether they talk a lot or not, does change how we perceive them and their contribution. One of the things that extroverts do more of is talk. So talkativeness really is a very reliable indicator of being extroverted. And if you talk more in meetings, uh, you will, of course, be listened to more uh, and your uh, inputs will be more influential than uh, introverts. But you do need to remember that extroverts are not more smart on average than introverts uh, and they don't necessarily have more things worth saying. It's just they say them more. So I think it's really important in work groups to pay attention to people who um, maybe have a higher threshold for speaking up in meetings and making sure that there's some systematic way to ensure those voices are heard. People do tend to like extroverts more. People like uh, gregarious people. Introverts can seem a little cold uh, or reserved at times, a little bit aloof even. Sometimes it's mistaken for, for, for arrogance, being a little bit quiet, or that you think you're better than the rest of us. So I think extroverts have this degree of magnetism, which often makes them popular leaders, but also leads us to maybe overestimate the value of their contributions relative to their more quietly spoken introvert peers. Hi, so I'm Sharan Bamra. I'm a train driver and I describe myself as an introvert. I don't really talk to many people while I'm at work. It's great, you know, if I want to blast Britney Spears toxic in the background while I'm driving, it's great. And I can dance between stations if I want to, you know, (laughs) stretch my legs. And I used to be a guard. And the reason why I left the guard's job was like, all right, I'm isolated, but you still have the customer aspect to it where you do have to make announcements and be the face of while you're on the train, so. That's why I made the transition to train driver because there's less of that. It's just completely isolated. They try to arrange Central Depot Christmas party and there's like maybe two or three people rock up, the, the extroverts who are really keen to talk. I mean, no one really turns up to those things. It's great. <laughs> so Nick, how many personality tests are used when it comes to recruitment? 
there's quite a number of better known tests that are used. I'm not going to list them by name. There's probably about five that are uh, in the most widespread use. Uh, but, you know, I think generally you don't get to choose which ones uh, you're using. Very often these things are uh, required to be used by someone with a psychology training background. But, I mean, the Myers-Briggs is, is well known. It's not always particularly uh, well thought of by academic psychologists, but there is a range of other options available as well. Nick, tell me more about the Myers-Briggs test, because I think that's the one that many of us have heard of. Yeah, look, the Myers-Briggs type indicator has been quite controversial for some time, and I don't want to run it down um, completely because uh, it does have a, a very large germ of truth to it. It does capture some important differences between people. I think some of the reservations people have about uh, the test uh, rely on the theory behind it. That is the idea that people can be actually uh, divided into types, as if they're one type or another type. Uh, the research evidence is very strong on the point that personality just isn't a matter of types. It's a matter of continuous dimensions. So for a very start, this uh, idea of sorting people into a number of categorical types is a, a real simplification. Uh, and I think there's also a concern that the uh, Myers-Briggs uh, is meant to be getting at people's strengths, and that's a good thing. Uh, but people also have weaknesses. And uh, I think one of the limitations for the Myers-Briggs is that it fails to assess uh, some of the darker aspects of human personality, such as people's tendencies to experience negative emotions uh, and things of this nature. Now, the test maybe isn't intended to do that, but it is a limitation from the standpoint of a comprehensive assessment of human personality. The Myers-Briggs Type Indicator is arguably the most famous one in the world, which globally has 2 million people doing it each year. And yes, it's copped a lot of criticism over the years, being called pseudoscience and for what some say are unreliable and inconsistent test results. Given its popularity, you've probably heard of it, or maybe even done it yourself. Dr Martin Bolt is a psychologist and senior director at the Myers-Briggs Company in the Asia-Pacific. Here's a short history lesson on how the MBTI came about. So it's a measure of personality type based on a set of preferences and it was based on a theory developed by Swiss psychiatrist Carl Jung. Who, after many years of studying and observing and researching people through his clinical work, he identified that there are patterns of behaviour which result from what he described as innate personality types. So he published his theory in a book called Psychological Types in 1921. And then two American women, a mother and daughter team, Catherine Briggs and Isabel Briggs Myers, came across Jung's theory in his book. And then for a good 20 years between the two of them, they just studied it, researched it. And after that sort of 20 year period, uh, Isabel Myers in particular identified that it was a practical way of understanding normal and natural differences between people. So she sought to find a way to make Jung's theory useful and practical in everyday situations. So Isabel Myers then worked on developing the MBTI, the personality type indicator, to measure Jung's theory. And her real aim with it was not only to help people learn about their own preferences, but to then, with that understanding that there are other personality types, to appreciate and find ways to use that type differences in constructive ways. Tell me about the role MBTI can play when it comes to the world of work. Sure. So the MBTI was always designed to help people firstly learn about themselves and learn about other personality types. So 
its primary purpose and its only purpose is for development reasons. Again, this is where sometimes people assume it could be used to help with decisions around recruitment or selection. That's actually not what it's designed for, nor should it be used for that. And in fact, when we train people or qualify people to use the MBTI, that's something that is made very clear. So in the world of worker development, it can be used for a range of applications, starting with things like understanding your personality and how that might relate to your job or your work responsibilities. It's often used quite extensively in career planning by career counsellors to help people identify what kind of work environments people might be attracted to, but also what environments might be less satisfying or less rewarding. There's a long track record of research and application in leadership and management training, so helping leaders understand not only their own personality type, but what might be the needs of the people that they're leading, and effective leaders essentially those who know themselves but also know how to adapt their behaviour to meet the needs of the people they're leading. And then it's used quite a lot in team development work, where you're helping members of teams understand how their personality types as a collective or as a combination work together. It can also highlight where there might be team strengths, where the team might be collectively quite strong, but also where the team might have some common blind spots and how to address that. And I guess there's a whole range of sub-skills that it relates to underneath that, everything from communication skills training right through to adapting to change or understanding different stress reactions that might occur in the workplace. So tell me about your view of the use of MBTI in the recruitment process. So what we always reinforce and remind people is that the MBTI doesn't measure someone's skills or competence in a job and it was never designed to do that. And so if an organisation was to be using the MBTI or something like the MBTI as part of recruitment and selection, they may in fact make a decision based on a result that is not meaningful around someone's performance in a job. There are personality assessments that are designed for recruitment and those assessments firstly have to demonstrate that they measure important parts of what the person is going to do in the job. And those kind of assessments also usually have inbuilt validity or lie detector scales to pick up if someone's responding accurately. The MBTI doesn't have any of that built into it, which is why it's really only designed when people want to genuinely find out what their personality is without believing that there's something to gain, such as achieving a job or getting a promotion. So we make it very clear to people who are authorised to use the MBTI that it's unethical and unprofessional to use it for recruitment selection. And we can, as a company, in fact, prevent people from using it for those purposes. I guess that doesn't stop people using something that looks like the MBTI for recruitment, but certainly the official MBTI is not designed to be used in recruitment and selection. It's also a tool that can be helpful in helping people identify what kinds of work they might find rewarding or satisfying. And there is lots of research that certain MBTI types are highly represented in certain occupations more than other types. And it does correlate with the kind of behaviours that are required in a job tend to reflect back at that person's personality. So if people are choosing work that fits their personality, they're more likely to report that they're satisfied with what they're doing. And we know there is, again, a correlation between satisfaction and then job performance. But essentially, your MBTI type or your personality type doesn't predict ultimately whether you'll be successful or unsuccessful in a job. 
My name is Flip Pryor. I work at the ABC and my job title is audience and content development. I would have considered myself an extrovert previously, but long periods of working from home, living alone, and often being in complete isolation over the past couple of years definitely changed me. Interestingly, um, a lot of those characteristics that I used to hate, um, if I'm really honest, um, actually changed the way I do my work and where I'm more productive at work, I guess. If you're a born extrovert or you feel like a born extrovert, you may not have nurtured those introvert tendencies that weren't really ever, ever given a chance to flourish, I guess. And I do think that it's interesting to embrace the benefits of having a mixed approach now. I don't think I will ever go back to being quite as extroverted as I used to be. I feel like it's going to be a long period of adjustment before people return to the way they were or um, I'm not sure it will ever happen to be honest and and that's okay and you know I really like both the introvert aspect of me and the extrovert aspect of me now so I'm happy to sit somewhere in the middle. Okay so if we use personality tests to better understand whether we have more introverted or extroverted qualities what happens when we behave in a way that's opposite to our natural traits, like pushing ourselves to be extroverted. Luke Smiley tested this theory in a study. That study was motivated by a finding that's been very consistent over the years and which is extroverted people tend to score higher on measures of well-being, life satisfaction and happiness and so forth. And because of the fact that personality is a sort of flexible and changeable thing because people are not extroverts all the time. Even the most extroverted person has times when they are quiet and um, less seeking to be the life of the party. This led some researchers to say, well, people are fluctuating in their level of extroversion already. What if we just instruct people to act more extroverted and see if you see the effects that we normally associate with being uh, higher on a measure of extroversion? And so they'd done a few of these studies in the lab and it suggested that when people act in a more extroverted way, when they express higher levels of extroversion, indeed in the moment they feel happier, they feel more positive affect, they feel more satisfied. So that research came before our study. Our study was really trying to take this out into the real world and conduct an intervention study. So we had people do this in daily life for a week. We had an app on their phone that prompted them multiple times a day to act either more extroverted if they're in that condition or less extroverted. And we followed them up through that week and then a two-week follow-up to see how this affected measures of well-being. And what did you find? We found that as the previous studies, which had only been conducted in the lab and only for short periods of time, like a half hour, we found that over a period of a week, indeed, people who are instructed to express higher levels of extroversion did increase in their experiences of well-being, positive emotion, so forth. But there was a catch that it really depended on your trait levels of extroversion. People lower in extroversion, people who are more introverted, they didn't really get too much benefit and those who are quite low in extroversion even experience some costs in the sense of feeling uh, tired, fatigued, and uh, also feeling inauthentic, like they just weren't being true to themselves. 
there's potentially immense value in understanding oneself. It can give you insights into your skills and strengths. So I think it's it's part and parcel of the examined life and really knowing who one is in the world. And Nick Haslam, what does all this mean for our working lives? I think it's undeniable that personality really matters in every domain of human behaviour, and work is no exception. So we shouldn't be surprised that people's personalities uh, influence how they are at work. And given that personality tests can predict uh, our personalities pretty well, there's a great deal of science behind them, we really ought to give personality tests a look in when it comes to recruitment and when it comes to uh, building good work teams. Thanks to my guests and to producer Zoe Ferguson, who we think is an ambivert, just like me. I'm Lisa Leong, and until next time on This Working Life, love your work. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.